am I going to do, quit? That's not an option. You got to keep on keeping on. Life's a garden, dig it. You make it work for you. You never give up, man. That's my philosophy. Welcome to Legendary Mindset. I'm your host, Jake P. Richardson. So today is Sunday, May 17th, and yesterday we had the Young Gun sale. And if you had listened to the bonus episode, you kind of got some details about that, but that was an incredible experience, and it was it was very exciting. I hadn't, you know, all, the, all these sheep sales and, and stuff had been canceled all spring, and and no one was really sure if Young Guns was going to happen. But that that crew, it was it was it was cool to watch um, as it all went down, and and despite everyone saying beforehand and, and just being so worried, it was going to get canceled. It it was really cool just to see it through and and watch those guys all work together and make it happen. And and it takes a, a big team, and and it was definitely something. Uh, to look up to and, and kind of applaud that crew for it was very well done and, and they and they followed the rules and, and did all that and and I think it's you know what our industry needed uh, everyone was really happy uh, to be around other people and in a setting like that and and just kind of getting back to normal uh, but we've got some new content coming up uh, if you'll like and follow our Instagram and Facebook pages at Legendary Mindset Pod and Legendary Mindset with Jake P on Facebook. Uh, we're going to have some bonus episodes coming your way, just like you did at the Young Guns. It'll come you know, randomly throughout the week when we get them uh, finished and edited, uh, not with a normal Monday episode. And it's going to be stuff, um, not really an interview with somebody about you know their life story and all that, but kind of about different events and, and different topics coming up that are um, don't really f- you know fall into one of those regular podcasts. Uh, like, like I said, we did the Young Guns sale. We're going to have some something come up where... As they announce major so show judges early on in the season, um, we're going to try and interview those guys and kind of get inside their head and figure out what kind they're going to use, what their gate sort's going to be, and, and we're going to ask very specific questions. Um, feel free to message us on Facebook or Instagram uh, with questions you'd like to hear us asking those judges. Uh, this next week we have coming up a bonus episode with Steve Sturtz, who's going to be sorting the Kansas City Market Lamb Show and the Georgia Nationals Weather Goat Show. And we talk for a while and, and get really detailed in about what goes through Steve's head when sorting a show of that caliber and, and all those different details. There's a lot of really good information in there, guys. And we hope after these major shows, we're going to sit down with those judges again and kind of let them talk through uh, what they saw, let them explain themselves, and, and just you know kind of discuss uh, what went through their head that day and what they used. I'm um, really excited about it. Like I said, Steve's will be posted soon, and uh, we actually have an upcoming podcast uh, with Steve Sturtz as well um, in the next few weeks. Uh, stay tuned for that. But today, we are going to be hearing from Jamie Smith. And if you haven't met Jamie Smith, I honestly feel sorry for you because he is one of the most down-to-earth, friendly, and, and genuinely sweet human beings I've, I've met. His dedication to being the best he can possibly be and his just his lack of fear of, of working hard and, and getting down and, and dirty and, and making stuff happen is something that definitely speaks volumes to his success in the showgoat world. Listen closely because his lifestyle is noteworthy and you need to pay attention to his mindset. showing it was just a deal where I was representing the feed and then we were we were reformulating the feed at the time compared to what what ACO was mm-hmm. currently doing and so I was 
going to the a lot of the times I guess you'd say ACO was sponsoring those shows back then and so since I was the show feed specialist mm-hmm. that I was going and just representing the feed and walking around looking at the goats talking to the breeders and at the time wasn't raising you know any goats you know when I first was in college um, kind of from making money I used to run 2,500 hair goats a year like, like Angora? Like Angora hair goats. Really? Yeah. And so I would buy them in the spring when they were thin. Mm-hmm. I'd worm them, give them like biomice and stuff like that, CDNT. I'd kick them out on brush, and then I would run them all through the summer months um, eating brush, and then bring them up in the fall. We'd share them, sell them all. Was there, there in, the Angora was worth money? So worth, yeah, it was quite a bit it. of money worth the, uh, by the pound. So I would share mm-hmm. that up, and we'd send that uh, to the wool mohair house and then sell that. And then I would load them up on a truck, and you know, and a lot of the times instead of taking them to sell barn, I'd just sell them on the ranch, and would, trucks would come in, would weigh them up, load them up, go weigh the trucks again, and then they would they would pay me. And most of the time, those those angoras were going when I was selling them were going straight across the border to Mexico. Really, and so were they eating them or were they? Yeah, they were eating them down there. I've heard their like, angoras are pretty versatile, aren't they? I mean, their wool, their I mean, their yeah, hairs are good. Th- but there's a meat. lot of stuff that was made. Uh, with that angora mm-hmm. with the hair and you know my granddad was actually the one that was a lot of times sold those hair goats for me mm-hmm. and man I was nervous as could be because you know he's he had had this guy and this guy would show up with this truck from old Mexico and it would beat be beat up and I mean have Mexico license plates yeah. and he's like this money money will be good and I'm like you sure I'm like good <laughs> and he's like yeah and so We'd go up there and we'd calculate it all up and we figured it up and this guy on what it was gonna be and this guy pulled out a roll of hundred dollar bills out of his um sock mm-hmm. and freak and just started counting out thousands of dollars and and hundred dollar bills and he gave it to me and my granddad said, There you go. He goes, You're good and I said, Man, I ain't good right now. It's like I said, they might be going to knock us off on the way uh, yeah, going down the road. I said, I wonder if we're going to make it home. He goes, oh, it, it'll be good. He goes, and he's like, now you don't even have to worry about taxes on this. I was like, man, you do have to worry about taxes. I got, yeah. I got a note to pay at the bank. Exactly. Yeah, it's crazy. So was that like your first time, I mean, with, with those Angoradoes, was that the first time you really raised goats, or was it kind of something you always did in your life? We always had a bunch of Spanish goats. Mm-hmm. You know, at times we might have 1,500 head of Spanish goats that we run here, and then we would actually kit them out and um, raise the babies on them. And so it was a deal where we had goats here forever. And, and those pens up there um, were where I run them, I guess we've, we've had goats there for as long as I can remember since I was a little bitty. Um, you know, when I first got in co- uh, in high school, when I was fixing to go to college, I got into the emu business. Emu? Yeah. Like the ostrich? Ostrich, exotic, exotic ostrich, ostrich, ostrich deal. And so I had several pairs of those and I would like come in from college and go down at night, flashlight checking for eggs and I'd get those eggs and I'd put them in there and I, I built a whole hatching incubation barn and chick runs and barns and um 
I was selling babies for like three to five thousand dollars a piece. Holy at, smokes! At like six to eight weeks of age. What were they buying them for? They were buying them for breed for people getting in the breeder business. And, and a I, bird is worth a bird was worth that. The the oil on them was crazy. The, on the value of, from a cosmetic standpoint, it was so penetrating, and they were they were looking at using it in arthritis products and cosmetic products really? and stuff like that. And then the meat was a kind of a high protein red type meat but with low in fat and cholesterol and so it it really looked promising but when the boar goats were introduced into the United States it basically killed the emu red type industry overnight. How did how do you think those things kind of go coincide with each other? How did, how did you know there was the a lot it was it was, it was a lot of I'm gonna say small hobby farmers that looked like they were gonna they were getting into this and um when the boar goats come in, you know, they were they were selling those bucks for high dollar. And, you know, there was truly more of a meat market for that mm -hmm. product at the end. And it was the, the boar goat, when it came over, had so much more meat and compared to what the Spanish was. And, you know, it was just overnight, the it changed the meat goat industry over here when they brought those in. And, people that were investing into the rat type business for this end part product and de developing these uh, consumable products from the meat to the, to the oil mm -hmm. to the to the hide you know I mean the skin on those are those emus are like baby ostrich I mean real small quills and was really a unique looking leather mm -hmm. but um, it had to be developed and when you looked at the meat industry on the goat side already being there um, it was just like everybody pulled out of the rat tide industry and all went into the to the goat side. What was the first experience you had with the boar goat? You know, the first experience with the boar goat actually went back before the boar goat with me. On the Spanish, I got into the cashmere side mm -hmm. of the goats for a while. And so we've got some goats for, in from Australia and New Zealand. And we come in and, and those cashmere goats were really neat, real cool hided real finer hair than what the, like the cashmere mm -hmm. or with the cashmere compared to the angora and so it was a really unique kind of niche market as well because people were taking these goats that really they were kind of white and cut straight in color mm -hmm. real fine hair and you know we were clipping these goats kind of like what you were the angora and trying to sell this cashmere hair off of it and so we did that for a while and then got into the the boar goats mm -hmm. and you know it was we were running them on our spanish goats as well we weren't really geared up toward the the show industry or doing anything at all at all we just, were just commercial just commercial and so we brought in some boar goats and some half boars um does and stuff like that and we were breeding them and just strictly for selling the meat on it and and so we kind of changed our spanish herd where we were running 1500 head of spanish over to that Spanish boar cross for just selling the, the meat at the mm -hmm. sale barn. And so that it was that was my first experience. And then way back in my early days, I guess, when I first got out of college, I worked for actually for ADM at the beginning. And then I went to work for Cargill after that. And with ACO Feeds, I was their show feed specialist. And um, they had me covering Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico as a show feed specialist. Um, later on and then also I was their national sheep and goat specialist so I was flying all over the country putting on sheep and goat camps and stuff for them and before I started raising the goats 
I was going for ACO to all the ABGA shows and kind of representing the feed, trying to get the, the feed going and selling to all the goat breeders. And that was probably how I really got started into the show goat side of things because you could just see the whole boar goat side of things expanding before the weather industry ever yeah. really took off. And At this point, had you much experience with the show animal stuff or just, just Really not. Feed you know, when I was in high school, we, we rodeoed, my sister and I did a lot. And um, I showed a few sheep a little bit, um, but not very much. Just a couple of years really on that. The majority of the time... Um, Growing up here in Zephyr, played football, um, six-man football, and then basketball, and then tennis, and track, and then uh, start rodeoing, and we'd rodeo all summer long, and, you know, we went hard across the country uh, rodeoing. My sister, my mom, I guess you'd say, carried us all across the country to, to rodeos. We'd go to three or four rodeos a weekend, and I remember one weekend, we started at Carlsbad, New Mexico mm-hmm. um, on Wednesday night. Then we rode in El Paso on Thursday night. We drove home Friday, uh, unloaded the horses there, then got up Saturday morning early and left out and went to Longview. We stopped in uh, Arlington along the way. It was called Wet and Wild at the time, the water park. And, um, my mom stayed in the parking lot with the horses, and my sister went through the, and I went through the water park for about two hours, then got back in the vehicle and kept on going to Longview <laughs> to, to go to the rodeo. It was nice night. of her to do that. <laughs> it was. She, she stayed up, and I don't see how she did what she did on taking us to as many rodeos because we, we covered the country. I mean, yeah. it, it was crazy the number of hours and miles. There was a lot of times we'd leave Nacogdoches. We went to this Piney Woods Youth Rodeo Association when I was in high school. And we would leave there on Sunday, drive all night long. We would pull up at the school at like 7 o'clock in the morning. She'd let my sister and I out at school, and then she'd come home and put the, the horses and stuff up. So Just a hard worker. It, it was, and it was, it was unreal the, the number of miles we put on. Were you guys pretty good? <laughs> well, it, we were very fortunate. Um, I guess my mom took a two-car garage that when we the house that we were in and bricked it into the trophy room for what my sister and I won growing up and there's probably like 225 saddles in there and Holy there's smokes. about 1500 belt buckles there's duffel bags full of belt buckles and notes on how many trophies and That's saddle a pads there's a lot of rodeos and this was way the rodeo industry has changed a whole lot compared just like the show industry has changed over the last few years mm-hmm. and Used to, you know, we would kind of rodeo hard during the summer, but then you did a lot more of your school stuff, school sports, and now rodeos 12 months of the year, just kind of like the showing is. So, like, rodeo, was it just like, okay, I'll do this because this is what my mom and my sister do, and this is what we do, or was it like like you loved it? Oh, loved it. I mean, you know, I started roping, I guess, when I was seven, and it was was pretty cool. David Drew was the guy that taught me how to rope, and had a little black and white roping horse and his name was Winterhawk. Mm-hmm. And so I got a stud buck named Winterhawk yeah. now and that was named after him. But I fell off seven times one day roping out there. Um, I'd stand up and rope and this little horse would just bury it up and stop and it would throw me on my back and I would hit and it'd knock the air out of me. And you know, I'm seven, he'd dust me off, I'd be crying. He'd stick me back on and say, you're all right, keep going. And so I'd go again and then I did that five times just like that. The sixth time, the, we, around the arena, the cedar post stuck up about a foot above the fence. Mm-hmm. And when I'm swinging the rope, 
the rope goes around the post with it still in my hand and jerks me off the back of the horse and I land on my back and I'm crying and my arm's hurting. He dusts me off, says, you're all right, puts me back on again. And then I'm tracking the calf around the arena the last time and the calf ducks in the catch pen. The horse goes to the outside. I hit the, the gate straight on and it knocks me out cold as a wedge. And I, I don't know how long I was knocked out, but I remember coming to and he's above me and he says, are you all right? And I start kind of talking. He goes, that's enough for today. And <laughs> we'll so, stop there. We'll stop there. <laughs> and so uh, he told me later on, he said, man, I can't believe you were as determined as what you were and that I didn't kill you as many times yeah. as I kept putting you on that. That's day. a lot of falls <laughs> for a seven-year-old. For a seven-year-old, yeah. Jeez. So you guys went to a ton of rodeos, covered half, I mean, most of the country. Yeah. Um, do you ever get hurt worse than that? I mean, you know, it's, that first oh, day? You know, you get little freak accidents. I remember when I was probably... I guess I was 12 years old, and there was a saddle series that my uncle was actually putting on in Mullen. And there was five rodeos, and then through the end of the year, they kept up with points. Mm -hmm. And for those five rodeos, they gave a saddle away. My sister won the girl's saddle. And then I was, I, but in that one, you had not only, mainly I did timed events and speed events, but then in this one, you had to do rough, rough stock events too. Mm -hmm. So I rode a steer in that, and I'd been riding all probably about two or three months for those. And so at that last rodeo, I'm riding the steer and I'm spurring it, spurring it. And this clown jumps in front of him and the steer cuts back. And when he does, I uh, fall off and I get hung up. Well, the steer kicks me out. And when he does, it breaks my wrist. It just, I can feel it snap. Mm -hmm. And so I get up and I have to lift my hand up and carry it out of the arena. And I'm sitting there and just my arms sitting there shaking and quivering. And I tell my dad, I said, my arm's broken. He said, well, You've got one more event to do. You have to rope your calf in the breakaway. And he said, you have to catch the calf to win the saddle. If you miss it, um, you lose the saddle. And he said, after you rope, then I'll carry you to the emergency room. Were you thinking like, okay, sounds good? Or were you like, my <laughs> I was arm thinking my is broken? My arm is broken and this hurts <laughs> is what I'm thinking. Because my whole arm was sitting there shivering and I'm like shaking. And it's the summer in Texas and it's hot yeah. and I'm freaking just Miserable. in a cold sweat. Yeah. And... So David was actually there, and we rode down there, and he said, you do not need to swing the rope. He said, you know how to swing a rope. He said, we're going to ride in the box. I'm going to build the rope for you. And he said, you just got to gut it out. He said, I'm going to put the rope underneath your arm. He said, you focus when that kick breaks. You, you come across that line, one swing and rope it, and then we'll go to the emergency room. And so I backed in there. Kev come out, one swing, roped it was a 2-1, won the breakaway, and then they took me to the emergency room, and I got my arm set, and, and, and it was good. <laughs> got a cast put on. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> so, what yeah. What a story. So was it in that moment, were you pretty, like, wound up on adrenaline, or did you, was it you could feel your arm was broken? You know, it, I could feel it was broken, but it's it was like it's mental focus, I guess you'd say, when you back up there, and it's just like in anything, you, you focus at what you have to do, and you block everything out, and you just – focus on the task that you hand. wanted it that badly you want it that bad and you, and you do it and you, it's pure determination everything else doesn't matter it's it doesn't matter you just you get it done yeah you, there you get go. it done so was your mom like so you went to road most rodeos with your mom yeah was, what kind of parent was she at the rodeos was she like sitting there coaching you or she was just like no you know she she was the one who got the horses ready she was in the back by the trailer all the time getting everything done and then other than that that was that was pretty much mm -hmm. it and then I would go do uh, 
my events. My sister would go do my event, her events. You know, she was five years younger than me. I'd a lot of times either be, if I wasn't riding, I'd be either pushing her kev out or else standing in the box with her trying to mm -hmm. help her get out. And so it was just, uh, we, we would do that. You get through and rodeo is different than what it is today. I mean, um, you know, we'd have four rode four junior rodeos one weekend. So we, we would get through there and it might be a deal where you rode till midnight, two, three o'clock in the morning. And then you'd drive to the next rodeo you had the next day. You'd spend the night, get find stalls for the horses or mm -hmm. carry panels with you, set them up, put them in the pens and then go to sleep and then get up the next morning and, and get ready. And so, uh, like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I mean, we might, we'd probably make at least three or four different rodeos kind of scattered across the country. Yeah. So I've I mean, being a mom or, I mean, even a parent in general for, like, an active show kid is probably, I mean, a lot like a mm -hmm. rodeo mom. So that was, like, was that Jenny's full-time job? You know. Just being a rodeo mom? For it was a deal. We, we ranched. Mm -hmm. And so we run cattle. And so it was a deal where literally it was run everything on that during the week. And then we would, you know, we would get home, leg horses up in the evening after we got in from school keep them exercise, we'd practice um, every day as far as with our roping or uh, keep our speed event horses or goat time horses tuned up or whatever my sister would. Um, and then it was, you know, the weekends we were gone rodeoing and someone would feed and stuff or check the horses and stuff for us while we were gone. But then when we were, when we were back here, she was taking care of the cattle and sheep and goats and stuff like that. Gotcha. So what did dad do when you were growing up? You know, my mom and dad, I guess, got uh, divorced probably when I was about 12 years old. Mm -hmm. And so uh, he, he ranched, and then he was mainly a sheep and goat order buyer. Yeah. And so he, he would buy and trade stock. That's the same thing my granddad did was sheep and goats. They would they'd buy them and sell them, and, and it's no different than a cattle order buyer, I guess you'd say. Mm -hmm. And then he loved this, the show side of things. He would, he would travel to all the shows across the Midwest. And he'd go to all the state fairs and, you know, he would actually look for my, I guess, my half-brother. He, he showed quite a bit where my sister and I rodeoed and he would look for animals there at those state fairs and stuff that they weren't going to use after that and try to buy them along mm -hmm. with those. And he'd have kids that he was buying projects for or looking for them animals. So he traded a bunch of commercial stock, like do sale barns and stuff? That's right. And he also... Traded show stock. Show stock. That's right. How many like show animals do you think he traded back there, <clears throat> like per year? Man, I don't back know what the, the, what the numbers would be. I'm I'm guessing he would probably, if I had to guess, Jake, I'm gonna say it was probably a couple hundred something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, is what it would be. Now, it might be a couple hundred goats, a couple hundred sheep, um, but he had, you know, he had he had other people that he was. I guess you'd say. He was nearly the middleman for some other guys who traded on yeah. and so he would buy a lot of numbers for them that might go to a lot of uh, school draw type mm -hmm. um, projects. And then he would have this particular families and stuff that he would that every year he looked for them to try to find their animals for. So was that like your first kind of intro to the show goat world was through John Carl your dad? You know, it, w it would be through him on what he was doing with that and then, you know, and then after that, it was what I was doing with the with the show feed side, mm -hmm. and you know, and it was a deal like I was saying, you know, it was a deal where when I was going to those shows, I looked at it and I thought, man, this goat deal is going to take off. Mm -hmm. You know, this I had seen for years what the show pig and the steers and what the lambs had done, 
but at the time you know the, the weather industry was just that wasn't kind of non-existent yeah. and I thought like, you know this thing's gonna get bigger and bigger and, and grow and um, and I thought man this will be a deal where I need to get started in it because one it'll be a way for me to raise some animals to uh, for my girls to show when they were little and you know it started off to where I had about 15 head of does in a buck and then you know now if you look at what Dana and I have here we've got about 750 head of goats you know and you so started with 15 yeah what year was that that would be like 96 was what it was and yeah. and I and how I got started with I started I thought it was going to grow and take over and so I started off with about 15 does and mm -hmm. I had a buck and then um and I think maybe at that time the the buck I was using was my dad and I were partners with on that with that buck and then when I was going to all these shows, I, I really thought the goats that Joe Raff had stood out. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I, I was going to the full blood shows and stuff like that, and Joe was going to some of those at the time, and when I would look at them, they just had a different look and a different style, and they always caught my eye. And I was actually doing a producer meeting in Wichita Falls, mm -hmm. and Joe was the extension agent there. And I told Joe at the meeting, I talked to him, I said, man, I'd really like to come out and look at your goats. I said, just kind of started trying to raise some of them and I'd like to look at them. And he goes, well, come out in the morning, be there at seven o'clock and, uh, and look. And I'm like, I'll be there. I was excited. Um, went out there, looked at them and he had a buck there that he'd been showing and he'd won like three of these full blood shows and stuff with, uh, it was a buck that he um, called, I called him Express. Mm -hmm. And he was actually a full brother to Mozart that uh, Douglas Bean had, yeah. and, but a year younger. And I bought that goat that day, that morning. And so didn't plan on buying a buck from Joe. Went to go look at his goats and bought a buck bought that a day. Bit, yeah. And that, that was pretty cool. So, I mean, Mozart's still talked about in a lot of dope pedigrees, especially at the weather side of things. I mean, oh. people just say Mozart. Oh yeah, it's it's it is Mozart. You know, you look at the bucks that that really Joe developed. I mean, it, it's unreal. It's kind of a who's who in the in the buck world. Seems I mean, like most. I mean, nine hundred Joe raised nine hundred. Yeah, that was a deal with uh, nine hundred. Was kind of it was out of out of bounds, and then out of a doe that uh, Mike Kelly had, and mm -hmm. so it was. You know, it's people refer to both ways to Joe's nine hundred, Mike's nine hundred. I know it was out of. Uh, Joe's buck out of bounds and out of Mike's doe. So well, I don't know. Yeah. So it's kind of a partnership deal. And I don't really kind of know how the whole thing happened on that, but that's how that was. But then you looked and he had Guns and Roses. He had the Colt 45. He had Mozart, um, the, the 191. You know, there's, there's a lot of really of good them, bucks. All yeah. the ones that, you know, yeah. most doe flocks kind of go back to go back to like, yeah you know i mean we, me and joe were talking about that today like that that raf jr and raf no way that's right are still in a lot of buck pedigrees they are you know, and it, it's still relevant they are and, it, and it's really cool i mean and it was he was he was a master on lining up pedigrees i mean they had a unique look but the way he did his matings they were so consistent you could mm -hmm. take them and you could breed them to does and they just transformed your herd it just immediately it seemed like i mean yeah. it was 
on how you bred them. I mean, I remember the first year when I bred Express, it was like overnight. The, those kids seemed like they were two inches wider, bigger rib, bigger rack, bigger mm -hmm. loin. It was just overnight change. And then I bought another buck from him called Mind Games. Uh, I used a buck from him called Bud and then ended up buying that buck from him and then ended up selling that buck in, 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 to a guy that uh, I guess sent him over to the U.S. Virgin Islands. Really? Is where he went and what was he doing with them there? I guess gonna put him on goats over there and it was it was pretty funny. I mean, I remember one time that goat he was he was a mean dude and mm -hmm. I was sorting off some does and all of a sudden the next thing I know he hits me in the back and he knocks me up against the fence and um he tries to get me down. I get him grabbed by the horns, I get him to give me a rope, I get him tied up to a telephone pole, and him and I had an understanding uh, <laughs> at that point, a little attitude adjustment, it seemed like, and, and <clears throat> at that point in time, he kind of left me alone after that, but... So this guy in the Virgin Islands, he was raising show goats or just raising boar goats? He, just raising boar goats. He, he was coming through, and uh, my place there in town on the road, he saw those does and stuff there, and he called me from the sign and come by and looked, and he said wanted to buy a buck and I showed him Bud said I got this one for sale and he showed him uh, he wrote me a check for him and hauled him over there they said the way they pinned him was they sent guys around with little sticks beating on the sticks to, to pin them and I Just thought running through the jungle through the jungle I thought man this would be pretty interesting I'd love to be there and see Bud get after those guys so see the buck attack all the, <laughs> the guys running around with yeah. sticks be a fly on the be a fly on the wall when that happened no doubt so you and Joe you meet you meet him at the show. You talk to him. You end up buying a buck. You get, you guys become pretty good buddies after that, or we, we we do, and we start talking. And him and Mike had their sales going on, and I was buying all these bucks from them, and then they were letting me put um, my weathers, a few weather, handful of weathers that were right that my dad and I kind of had then as well. We were putting them in their sale, and then. Um, I guess in 1999, so three years later, mm -hmm. Joe come up with the idea and he said, you know, we need to, he said, you're putting full page ads out um, with your goats. I'm putting full page ads. It's in mine. He said, why don't we start a deal? And he said, let's call it Blue Team um, Weathers. And he said, because we're all got the same goal to try to win. And he said it'll cut down on all of our advertising mm -hmm. expense and marketing expense, and uh, we're doing all of our sales together, and it's the same genetics anyhow. And I said, man, that's you know, I'm just getting started. He been in that thing for a long time. Yeah. One of the first ones with goats that come over on the full blood side, and I'm like, uh, I'm in. Yeah. And so we started it in '99. So you know, they're 21 years uh, that we've had Blue Team Weathers now. So how, how did you come up with the name? That was that was that was Joe blue blue for first place. Okay, is what it was, and so to try to try to we were all in this thing to try to win, and and we know that it takes a team, mm -hmm. and and that's not changed on anything today. You know, I mean, it takes um, your parents, it takes everybody helping to yeah. make these animals work and to feed them and to exercise them and to get it going going, and you can have the best genetics, but. If, if the kid doesn't have the right program or, the, or they're not committed to, to do what it takes to the consistency to get out and work those animals every day and exercise them and feed them on a regular schedule, it's not going to happen. So it's a team approach. So we, that's how we come up with the blue team name. And, you know, and it still works. I mean, Joe and I are still partners basically on this. And then if it wasn't for all the work that 
that Dina does here with the goats, which, since I have a full-time job with Baringer Ingelheim, and, you know, we started off with, like I said, 15 goats, and you're uh, yeah. 750, and then we're just now fixing to expand to build a new barn here for just for weaning babies with that, and then we built another set of reset uh, traps where we can hold another 600 head. It's grown a lot. Yeah, it's grown a lot yeah. over the last four or five years. Yeah. So... We're, so Joe and Mike were already in partnership, mm -hmm. and so yep. did you guys share a lot of bucks? You know, back then, and it, how did that? It was a deal work? where um, Joe and I think Mike worked together with their bucks. I used some of Joe's bucks uh, whenever I needed some, and that's kind of how it worked there. And then Mike did me a huge favor. Uh, forever grateful for him for selling me that Starbuck mm -hmm. buck. That, that buck was, uh, in all of my genetics and pedigree, it goes back to him and he was um, blackhead, one of the first really true blackheaded mm -hmm. bucks out there in the weather side of things. And he just, he was so huge footed. He was so exotic up through that neck and that front end and just massive hip and loin and it was it was funny. I remember the first day that I got him back, and David Garrett. I called him, and he stopped by and saw him there. And he, I said, he said, "What do you think?" And I said, "He's blackhead." I said, "There's these he's blackhead. There's not very many of them that are blackhead." He said, "They if they look like this, and you're selling, it ain't gonna be a problem selling blackheaded yeah. kids. I promise you." And that was before. I mean, blackhead's pretty common now. Common but, now, but, but back then the there was, there was thing, not. Yeah. He was that was kind of the first blackhead. So he stood out way out. Oh, he did from a, from a look and bone, and what was so unique about him is uh, he not only made s such great weathers, but the the females on him were so productive mm -hmm. as well. And and then Mike later sold me um, one ninety one. Mm -hmm. And I used to go over uh, and look at goats at Mike's all the time and would walk through them and look at them and kind of talk to him about goats as well. And I did the same thing with Joe, would go over and walk and look at them. And, you know, and on all of Mike's, the thing that I, you know, he had some great bucks, obviously, with 900 and with Wizard and Showtime. And, but, you know, all the stuff that I loved when I looked at them, when I'd ask him how they were bred, it would be, you know, out of 900 or out of Showtime or whatever buck, but then they would go back to 901 daughters. Mm -hmm. And the females are so important to me on making your program what it is. And whenever I talked to him about trying to buy another buck and he said, well, I might sell 901, I was excited because I knew what it would do from the maternal side of mm -hmm. things. And you, and you can't ever look past the maternal side of things when you're trying to, to make things happen. So those those two guys were raising bucks together and, and raising goats together. How different were their two flocks from each other? You, think? you know, I don't know at, at the time if they were truly that different. It was a it was a deal though. I'm gonna say when you looked at Mike's herd back then, it was it was nearly when I first started working with them. Now it changed progressively, not too soon after that. But when I first started working with them. It was kind of like Joe's deal was, you know, he was selling some bucks, you know, and, and that's what his kind of whole deal was. He was making the buck power to try to, to, to make the next bucks, and Mike was the one that was making the great weathers yeah. and selling them and going that way. And it was kind of like, you know, that was kind of how it was. He was fo they were both focused and driven. And then after I 
we started blue team and things changed and stuff around there then joe stuff totally changed on how you know now we don't hardly sell any bucks you know i mean we'll sell some semen online but very very seldom do we sell bucks because you know if you're going to go win shows you've got you've got to decide if you're going to raise bucks or if you're going to sell weathers and if you're it takes a stud buck to go win a weather show definitely and so you know you, you don't do both and and stay on top and so um we kind of totally got to where joe did on there was no not selling any more bucks we're just going to focus on weathers and that's the way it's been for a long time and then you know it also that way i think it makes your females more valuable more unique too because because it's you know they don't they don't have the opportunity to come get a buck from you so they try to come get females from yeah. you. yeah and if they can't buy semen i mean they're gonna be that's like right. i want some blue team genetics, genetics. That's so right. it's, i mean you're gonna have to sell half your doe kids every year anyways and that's right might as well make them more valuable right that's right no doubt definitely so where so i know mike kelly i mean they're in, in the history of it all he sold out where were you guys in your partnership at that point and how did that kind of you know Mike, at first, when we first started Blue Team, it was like, you know, kind of stayed together with Blue Team there for the first few months and stuff like that. And then Mike wanted to do his own things, wanted to make it Kelly yeah. and me goats. And we, and, and we had ours uh, separated there. And, you know, and it was a deal where um, it was still a great friendship with Mike and, and with everything as far as when I talked to him and he was, he was very helpful and stuff. Um, along the way but it was a deal where he was he was focused on ours his we were kind of focused on the on the blue team as far as the branding and the image kind of timed out right yeah and, uh, and and it was a deal where mike's weathers were phenomenal and you know and it was a that that out of bounds making 900 i mean 900 was obviously i'm gonna say the the buck of the industry i mean there's been no other buck like that one that made an impact mm-hmm. in the weather industry and I had a buck when we first started out. His name was Burn, and um, Burn was out of out of bounds as well. And the first kid crop, he was just a little buck kid, and got three. I had three class winners at Houston that year with the first kid crop out of him, and I was so excited about that buck. And that buck was so exotic and so unique. And we got home from Houston, and um, he was down, I guess him and some other bucks were fighting and he pinched a nerve in his back and he never got up again and that was the end of that buck. Mm-hmm. But it was crazy on how, what that out of bounds did on, on lining up. But but Mike's genetics were so unique and he did, his females were so pulled apart, had so much muscle. Um, they, were, they just had a unique style about them for sure. Yeah. So it seems like the way we were describing Joe, like he's kind of a geneticist, you know, loves that part of it. Loves that part of it. It, it was a, you know, and it was a deal when we started the blue team deal. It was kind of, Joe has taught me a ton on the genetics and how he m- makes things up and lines them up. But, you know, it was a deal where I'll send you, I would send him pedigrees and say, okay, what's your thoughts on them? And he'd send stuff on back to where, what he thought on how things would line up and it was a it was a deal from the beginning at the beginning on that deal it was like you know we, he he taught me a lot as far as why he made certain decisions on matings and lining up certain genetics and and, and it obviously worked if you look at the stud bucks that he's made over the years mm-hmm. he, he that dude is phenomenal on knowing how to line up genetics and make things consistent and just 
give a certain look and it was he did that and he said i'm turning the marketing over to you and so i kind of worked on the marketing and the branding and stuff and stuff at, trying to make the image for blue team that way yeah so <clears throat> like how does um like current day blue team weathers you know arise i mean you, if, you, if you've ever been to jamie smith's facilities like this place is you know impeccable um you probably wouldn't how many goats do you say you have 800 about 750 yep. 750 i don't think i could walk on this property and think yeah there's 750 goats here you know it doesn't it doesn't smell it doesn't you know there's green grass in the traps and you know everything's healthy and spread out like kind of where do you where do you decide you know this is what i want to do i want to i want to build this place i want to raise these goats and i want to hustle at this you know about five it's probably five or six years ago jake um i had the does down at my dad's place and he was getting in really bad health wise and couldn't check things and we didn't have near the numbers and um i was looking to move those goats up to where i'll call it our horse barn facility and stuff was at move uh, to where my mom's place and stuff was at to run them and i had i come to a crossroads and making a decision said okay it's either time to downsize um and cut back on numbers to where you can do it in the existing facilities or uh, it's time to get big and yeah. get aggressive and and go after it that way and it was a deal where you know i talked to dina at the time and um she was ag teaching and decided it was a lot better um to have her instead of teaching ag to watch and take care of the goats and that made a huge difference whenever she started taking care of things and watching them and putting them on a regimen of really checking that uh, the animals, like one dairy guy told me, he said, nobody does a better job in, ta in taking care of babies than a, than a woman. Mm -hmm. And he, he was right on that. I mean, sh she's done a phenomenal job with that. And I took this property that, that was basically mesquite that we had that was where we used to run the commercial Spanish goats. Mm -hmm. and, and I really loved the layout of it because the drainage on this um, worked great on how the hill come down and you can set those pins up and when you get big range and a lot of the problems with health issues is when moisture. goats are standing in water and moisture and mud and they, they just don't do good in that and so the way the hills were lined up it worked perfect to get the the drainage and to get the water off of the pins in a hurry and um, come in and just totally there was mesquite trees everywhere and had the whole place grubbed and mesquites pushed up and walked out and kind of said this is where the barn needs to be laid at um i need these traps here and i got with my fencing guy and i said okay let's line these things up this is where i want my pins i want uh 12 foot lanes to drive everything to the the barn and basically we set it up like a feed yard facility mm -hmm. um with with work with what i do with animal health and what i've done on the feed side looking at all these different facilities over time i wanted something where you one person if they had to could work everything by themselves, but if you had help you could it really go fast mm -hmm. and you said to where you can drive the, to from the feathers trap to the barn in these lanes and make it where it's efficient and then we tried setting up two-sided sheds um to where everything could get protection from the weather we set up feed space to where you could have um good troughs that you could feed from the outside without having to get in the pens getting knocked down spilling feed and 
you know, and then I believe a whole lot in biosecurity. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think a lot of that is from, from what I've done from the animal health side of things and seeing different facilities and from the feed past, um, knowing that, you know, you look at hog operations, you don't just drive in and you just, and you walk wherever you yeah. want. I mean, it's wash in, wash out. I mean, yeah, exactly. You gotta, you gotta go through some definite biosecurity measures. And so we try to put, we put signs up. We have foot baths outside of our place when you come in and, um, and then we go in and we have, you know, we run, I'd say on a skeleton crew here for the size that we are, but, um, we got great people with Heath and, Kessie that work for us and they take a lot of pride with everything here as well and so we set it up to where cleanliness is huge I mean we go in with all the pins when babies day weaned when those sets are done we totally clean out everything we totally disinfect everything before the next group come in same thing in our kidding barn it's set up like a hog facility to where you have a flush system underneath and so everything's pressure washed everything's disinfected and everything's redone before the next babies are coming in to try to cut down on any kind of health issues that was my favorite part of your barn is walking into that kidding room because i mean you walk in there every single like i mean everyone who raises sheep and goats they've got you know their their kidding and lambing jugs like a small pen every one of these doe pens has a creep area where the baby can go and lay down and knock it laid on by its mom under a heat lamp and every single pen has a head gate and with a water bucket and a feeder attached to it. Like this place is made to flow and, and be easy to run. It's, it's pretty incredible, you know, how, how, how keep, I mean, you guys keep it really clean. I think Cassidy, mostly what she does is yes. just constantly just cleaning clean, and cleaning the cycle. Um, like, is there any, other than just having, I mean, it's handy to have things clean. Is there any like, you know, what, what kind of made you that way to where you just feel like everything, I mean, just, you know, high presentation, you know, make things look good. And you know, there's a certain thing. You know, it's, it's, um, I think it's looking at everything I do. I don't want to, I don't, don't want anybody to, when they pull up here, think that we're doing anything half. We go full out everything we do. I mean, when we, uh, you know, when I talk about growing up in rodeo and, you know, in, in high school, all state football, you know, I had the highest GPA of anybody that ever graduated from Zephyr High School from the time the school ever started from day one till when I graduated. Mm -hmm. I don't go anything halfway on anything. And you can ask my wife about that. I mean, we probably ain't, I'm pretty anal about everything that we do. And so when people come up and see the facility, I want it to make an impression to them that you know this is not something that we take lightly that we put our heart and soul into everything that we do here and that's kind of part of the service you know that we do too on trying to tell them hey if you got questions on feeding please call us so we can help and try to give them that extra service and you know chad walker's helped us tremendously as well and you know and i think it's always great to have other people that you can rely on to give your honest opinion you don't ever want to be born uh, blind as far as on what you're doing and you know i think having him this part of helping us as well with uh getting hayden's animals ready to sending customers there to go to him to help get things uh, dialed in with their animals is just something that's that's key and and I just wanted it for, you know 
people can have a lot of options to when they go by, but I wanted it from when they come to our place to feel like, you know, that there's a lot of effort going in here to try mm -hmm. to make them the best animal we physically can uh, from what we're doing with our genetics to, you know, we, you know, like our last sale, um, I looked, there was, they went to 11 different states in that sale out of, in that online sale from, well, I guess there was 38 head, mm -hmm. I think, in there. And so, you know, there's a, a lot of people that drove down from far places ahead of time just to look at those animals. And, you know, I don't ever want it to um, feel like, you know, man, it's, we've got to load up and we've got to drive 14 hours to, to go look I want them to be excited to hey it's time to we go look at animals yeah, yeah. we go let's go let's man. go and you know and you guys have a pool we have a pool in front of the office <laughs> with a hot tub like you don't, you don't even have a house here like this is just <laughs> yeah I know this place is nice exactly we, we just did a house swap with my mom and we used to live in town and now we're trying to remodel the house that joins right next to the property and so it's gonna really make it handy for us but but it is, I mean, it's, we, want it to, we want it to be a destination where kids could come, have a good time, enjoy their self, look at the animals, and at the same time, the kids were excited to get because there was a lot of stuff they could do on the outside and mm -hmm. um, instead of being cooped up for 14 hours on a vehicle when they get here, um, and then give the parents a time to, to get away from them a little bit and then look at the livestock and make decisions and then keep coming back. And, that, and that's what the fun... Part of this whole industry is jake is the relationships that we've made with these families there's so many of them that every year you know we see from till their kids graduate and um and there's a lot of families that it was several years before i actually got to meet them in person but they would call and you know tell us what they were looking for and we would have somebody bid for them before we started doing this cci live on our own our live sales here and we sold a lot of goats to, to people that first time they saw them was when they showed up to them without um, seeing and had a lot of state fair banner winners on that that are out on our champion drive. And it makes you feel good when someone puts all that trust in you and then it, it, it works it out. out. Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, I don't ever want somebody, when that goat shows up, being disappointed. I want it to always be better than what they were expecting yeah. what's going to show up and and what's cool with that little, with the champion drive deal it's there's a, been a lot of parents that set, tell us that their daughter or their son's goal was to get up one of their to have the picture on one of the banners hanging up on the champion drive so that, that was a pretty cool deal so too. for those of you guys who don't know so when you come in the blue team weather's front gate there's about like an eighth of a mile of a driveway where if you look to your right, it's just every single winter they had in the past year, and they had to put it out in a little banner for you to drive up. How many are out there? I mean, it's, it, it was covers the whole fence. It was pretty cool. We had 40 new banners this year. Um, mm -hmm. And so there's like the there's last two or three years, I guess, on there, and I'm wanting to say there was like 85 banners, I think, up on the on the fence. It's it's yeah. pretty cool. So what's your what's your main goal with Blue Team Weathers? Are you trying to, do you want to win the most shows? Do you want to raise the best goats? Do you want to? You know, the most high sellers. Like, what, are you, what, what are you trying to accomplish? You know, with it? the goal that we have is to to keep getting better. I yeah. guess you'd say the the minute that you lose that drive to improve your herd, and you think you're where you're at, and you just kind of get complacent. In my opinion, that's when you need to 
either downsize or you maybe need to consider getting out because it, you got to have that drive to every year try to make animals better than what you made the year before. And our deal is we, we really try to want to have goats that are going to fit just about anybody. I mean, we, you know, we've got people that come here and their whole goal when they come here is to get a goat that where they can do get their county show and they can try to get a dot and make the sale at the at a Texas major and some of the best thank you cards that we've ever had come to us were from kids that had said you know we've been trying for 10 years to get one in the sale at San Antonio in Houston and we'd never been able to get it done and we finally made our goal of doing that and I mean and you can hear the passion and the excitement that they have to do that and and then at the same time you know we've got families that come here every year and they're super competitive that's all they live day in day out and, and their whole goal is to try to win divisions or to win shows and and our goal is to try to raise goats that are that caliber mm -hmm. to where they know they can come here to find a goat that gives them a chance to win at a national or a state show. Mm -hmm. So I, I spent a bunch of time here over the winter time, mm -hmm. um, you know, just everyday feeding and, and working stuff. And I kind of watched you during breeding season. You know, I don't think I've ever seen someone, you know, when we when we when we sort some does to put with a buck. You know, I, I look at the does and I, and I try and study you. I'll be like, okay, why is he breeding this these bucks to these does, and why is he doing this? And I would notice, you know, the group of does. Like where, where's where if, if I'm like breeding sheep, the I I don't want to turn a group of ewes that all look the same out with one buck, but like you'll turn twelve different kinds of does out with one buck, and it, and it lines up ten different ways, and I mean it just seems like there's so much more going on in your head than just well, just what the does you know look like. How like how do you go about lining stuff up? I mean, is there just one way to do it, or you? No, there's there, there's not one way to do it. Um, you know the cool thing is when you're lining them up and. You know, a lot of people look for, they've lined, they line things up really, really tight. And then at the same time, then they're out looking for that outcross. You know, I would say on the bucks that we have here right now, we've probably got at least five different genetic lines in our own line. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of times when you're mating things, you're really not, you might not be mating that mating to try to make the weather you're really looking at that one to make the dough that you're wanting to breed the next year to mm -hmm. to lining it up to to make that next stug butt to make that next banner winning weather and so there's a lot of the things that we look at to where we sit down from the genetic side of things and we're lining it up looking at the does and the bucks pedigrees on both sides females on the buck and females on the female side on how we're going to line things up with the bucks to make the matings work and then you might have two or three different options that you think are the ones that are your genetic mating that you want to do and then you get them in the pen and then you look at them and you mm -hmm. say okay you know this is the buck here that you have and then I'll have a list that's here's option two here's option three and you look at it and say okay now you're looking at this doe where's the one thing that you would change on her to make her better is it you need a bigger hip on her do you want a cooler front end up is it pull her apart a little bit more do you want to make her bigger footed and hairier legged what's your step that you're trying to do and so you look at those and say okay out of the three options that i've got here these are the this is what i'm going with 
because he's got that aspect that's mm -hmm. going to add that to it. And then there's other ones that you've got, you know, like with some of that, with the Who's Your Daddy line um, that's done so good for us and Soldier Boy and stuff like that, that you know what they're going to do and, and you figure out, you know, hey, which one of these bucks works the best with those and because of what happened the year before. So you, you ch maybe change up some things to add more of those bred females, not even looking kind of at their phenotype but mm -hmm. knowing from the pedigree type that this thing works every time so it's you know it's not just a a deal where you're lining up pedigrees on paper or you're not lining phenotype when they walk in the pen and you're putting them with this type buck it's i'm gonna say it's a combination of looking at all the above to yeah to make it in i had one of the best compliments i guess this year from a friend of mine who who's a really good livestock evaluator and he come and looked at that first set of weathers that we had and he said he goes i don't believe i've ever seen a more consistent looking set of weathers in this he said they all look alike but he said the thing that's impressive is they're out of eight different bucks and so you know that's the thing is to try a lot of people when they're doing their flushes and we get very intense this year we programmed 225 does to flush this year 225 donors donors holy smokes so we'll get in i want to i'm going to ask you about the et and ai in, in just a second but i think there's definitely something to be said about i mean you said you started off with 15 does and now you have you know 750 50. Mm -hmm. so I mean, there's there's a cer certain amount of instincts that you develop when all of your does, for the most part, were born here, and so are their moms. Like you know how they're gonna work, you know, probably extremely well, and I think that's it gives you a lot of confidence when it comes to you know pairing them up with bucks. It does, especially when the bucks are out of those same doe families, and and it's and it's hard, you know. The other thing that's pretty unique here is you know, a lot of people buy a lot of bucks, mm -hmm. and and we don't buy. I can't remember when the last buck that I've bought has been, you know, it's pretty much we raise our own our own bucks. Now, I, I buy a lot of outside does that there's a lot of good breeding programs out there. And if you don't, if you don't give credit to those people who have got good genetics and good, you know, that's just, that's not really evaluating livestock with an open mind and mm -hmm. that's not giving people good credit. And there's a lot of good animals out there. And so I appreciate the livestock for what they are and, you know, Joe and I have come up with a philosophy on that. A lot of times, is you know, we try to go buy the best females that we can on some outside does to bring in some out, some genetics, mm -hmm. where we can make a stud buck because it's hard. The one that you're wanting to buy, you can't buy because that's the one they're keeping. They're not going to sell it. And you know, and, and we've done some outside mating switches for the last two three years here, where David Garrett and, and we have uh, swapped bucks on some matings, and you know, man, that's worked great because. It's, it's, it gives you an opportunity to add some even some more genetic diversity to, to get in and then you can line them back up with your stuff and at the same time with with us living so close together you know and, and being really and easy. being friends it's it's a easy transition going back and forth and trying to work together that way that's too. and that's worked pretty well I mean the past two years between you mean stuff David's one with out of your bucks and stuff y'all one with out of his bucks I mean it's been pretty it, it's been pretty cool I mean that's for the last, you know, for the last two years, it was phenomenal. We've had phenomenal years, and David has two, and to to see the stuff that he's won that was Soldier Boy stuff, or stuff that we've won that's been out of his buck and stuff like that too. It's it's been pretty phenomenal. And then, you know, like 
this year for, you know, like that Kansas City deal, how, how do you repeat to where the top three weathers that you have are out of, out of your stuff with mm -hmm. the one Hayden one being out from David's out of a black gold and then stuff that then we had a Ali um, that we raised that was reserve and then the one that was third overall was out of Godwin. So it was pretty cool to have all different bucks. Different bucks. I mean, how many times can you say that you can win three hole a show and out of three different bucks? Yeah. So that, that's pretty cool. And I thought about that earlier when you mentioned it. <clears throat> Like, I think three years ago when I first kind of came here and started hanging out, I mean, you could look at the babies and be like, okay, that one's a soldier. Like, mm -hmm. he's got a soldier head, soldier body, and usually yeah. you'll be right. I mean, yeah. even, you know, Winterhawk and the other ones, you could pretty much nail. Now, like, when I walk in your barn, I am always wrong. I mean, that <laughs> one looks might look exactly like that buck, but because that buck's his grandfather on the bottom side. Sorry. And stuff's so lined up, it, it seems like, you know... It, it's hard to pinpoint what they are exactly at this point. It it is, and that and that's what that's what's pretty cool because used to you're you're spot on. You could walk out there and, and and tell what the kid was before, and you can't do that anymore. No, it's and it's crazy how quickly that changed. It, it's unreal, and you know, and that's what's so exciting about the goats. You know, um, I've got guys that give me crap all the time with that I work with bi about raising goats, and they're you know they're raising cattle or show steers mm -hmm. and stuff, and I'm like. And I, I, I let them talk crap, and it, but it's pretty funny because you know I, I say yeah well you know you breed a goat, ten, you know less five than less later. than five months later you've got a baby on the ground and then it's you're selling true. it at sixty, you know two to three months after that so from the time you're breeding her you've already sold the baby in in eight months and so in nine months how, what have you got out of your cow well that calf's still in there for another month mm -hmm. and then you know so it's and sometimes them goats will bring as much as them oh yeah some, as much as some of the high dollar cattle cattle yeah it, like. it is it's it's pretty cool from that standpoint and it's and it's not hog fast as far as on how fast you can turn genetics and stuff around in in a breeding program but it's it's really quick on what you can do so you said earlier you flush you're gonna flush 250 225 yeah 225 does this year yeah that's a, I don't know if I've ever met anyone who's, you know, programmed that many donors. It's small ruminants. It's it's chaos at, at times, and I guarantee you I couldn't do it. It um, well, Joe helps on matings with all the the people we have, but then with Dina is so organized on what she does on her her day planner and calendar on where she's got stuff set up, and this is a school teacher going back. We have a whiteboard and she's got a whiteboard with dates circled on it to where when they come in they check it for every week it's put on there cedars are going in time to pull these out time to give shots and to because when you you know when you're flushing that many you're putting cedars in some pulling cedars on others and breeding on another one it seems like all i mean you've got so much overlapping yeah. it's it's it, gets confusing. it get can create crazy so the more the more i think about this i mean 250 donors is as many does as a lot of of the bigger guys even have like do you think you could get to the point where you could ai just just ai every day you have and get the same set of kids you would if you flushed you know i think you can you could probably get close there uh the thing that's unique you know we're not gonna have i'm not gonna say we got 250 head of donors but we'll have some for instance on some of our really top yearlings the first year they will get flushed four times or they will get flushed three times plus AI. So yeah. I'll have, and what's cool is somebody says, well, that's an unproven 
animal and it's like not in my eyes it's not if you know what her mama and her grandmother and what that what they have done and you've got a pedigree in their past on what they've done and you like what they look like you know we'll come in like right now we're uh, fixing to flush here in April we'll turn around and flush again on those in August first of August and then you'll come back in and about 60 days later you'll flush them again and then we'll turn around and breed them after that so we'll take those our top young ones and we'll get uh, we'll breed them to four different bucks and have babies out of them that's probably one of the more aggressive like approaches to flushing. I don't know if so. Have you noticed any? There's no issues with flushing four times a year. No, I, it, it doesn't seem like it. I mean, it, your texts are good. I mean, yeah, you, you you do what you can and you watch with anything when you've got procedures. You know, I mean, you you watch them following and make sure if something doesn't look right, you get antibiotics in them or you check them, get them up and physically examine them and watch them. But you know, it's a deal where you're getting the, the most that you can out of those genetics by by pushing them that way. Mm -hmm. But it, I don't think it's too much, but it's definitely a way to where you can take that top female and you can do it, you know, and, and I try to never, there's a lot of people that recreate this, if they were successful and won something with it, they try to totally recreate that one again. I, I don't breed the same one twice mm -hmm. unless the only time I will do that is, for instance, if I've got if I had something that made a killer buck, but didn't get any females out yeah. of it. And to me, the female side is so important. If I didn't get any females out of that mating, I might redo that mating. And it's not to try to make another buck or weather or anything. It's to strictly get those females because I want to put those into the the herd. That is something I've noticed here: is the donors that typically perform the highest are the ones that are a full sib to a buck or a flush mate to, to a buck. It's pretty cool from that standpoint. And, yeah. and, and that's the, the other thing that I strive to do is, you know, you can get a terminal cross. And there's some bucks without calling names on them that, you know, in my opinion, when you looked at them, they were terminal crosses. I mean, they made phenomenal males, but the females might not be as productive in how they milked and what they did from that standpoint. And you, you know, I think that's where you got to know your genetics. If it, if it's a buck that is terminal only, you know, you you need to look at him that way. If you've got a buck that's maternal only, you need to know that. But I want to try to have those bucks that produce as good of females as what the and no males way. both no ways. ways. And because one, it helps you stay more relevant uh, longer. I think because you're able to keep females in your herd that are going to be functional and work versus having a set of females that don't milk at all. And then you get babies that don't grow out. And so I think that's key in, in what you do. And, and, and I think that's why it's so important. And like Joe said, told me from the beginning and that's, and I believe him totally wholeheartedly on that, uh, is you make your girls look like girls and you make your boys look like boys. Yeah. Uh, when you said that, I mean, something popped in my head. I can't remember who told me the story, but um, some guy was going to go look for a weather buck mm -hmm. to, you know, raise some goats. And he shows up. I, I wish I knew who it was, but, you know, anyways, they show up to buy a weather buck. Uh, they tell the guy who's, you know, raised the goats, yeah, we're looking for, you know, a weather buck to make some really good weathers and, you know, raise some show goats. And he's like, a weather buck? He's like, yeah, one that makes good weathers. He's like, no, you don't want a weather buck. You want, you want a good buck. Says so like, that'll make good females because if you all you worry about is making good females, the weathers they'll come, you know. After that, and I always kind of took that to heart. You know, the, the females are the most important thing. You know, you can only make what your females are capable of, of, of making. Doing. That's right. 
but um, so when did you start AI and, and doing the embryo transfer? I know it wasn't really a thing in the '90s at all. I think it no, it it, it really wasn't, and you know. I guess this will be, I'm trying to think if this is the fifth year we're going into this barn or what, but I'm going to say we did a few, and it was very, very limited early. Uh, when I got aggressive was probably about um, probably five years ago. I, I flushed a few before that, but when I say a few, I was flushing probably 20-something you know, does like 20 to 25 yeah. and, you know, and there was one female, one female that was, you know, she was so good, um, of a female, but her number was, um, 1053 that would flushed. And, you know, and I still believe there's a lot of genetics that go back on maternal pr productivity, um, on how they result on what they're going to do as far as the number of embryos and how fertile and stuff they are. And, you know, the first time uh, I flushed her was to Starbucks. Mm -hmm. And I flushed her and we got 40, let's see, what was it? It was 42 out of 42 embryos. Holy I mean, it was unreal. I flushed her to Starbucks and it made a set of females uh, that were off the chart good. Um, they were so consistent, but... That doe um, made so many of the donors that we had that go back to uh, so many of the stud bucks. I mean, that that female is in that pedigree. But then come back 45 days later and flush that 1053 again to um, 901 and got 28 out of 28 embryos Jeez. out of her. And... Uh, 45 days later. 45 days later. But this was what was crazy. The the first flush out of those 42, we got 42 good embryos, there was one buck kid, and the rest were all females. And um, that one buck kid won his class at Altwood. We cut him, and he won his class at Austin. And I thought should have had a chance to, to get a piece of the overall, but um, but that, that one was phenomenal. The 901, there was only two. Theme, or two males in that one, and actually made two stud bucks on on that one. So out of those twenty-something girls, only two. Two boys. Two boys. Two, and the rest of them were all females on that as well. Kind of a little blessing in disguise. It, it really was. It really was because that female was so good and so consistent to get that many females to build a base with was unreal. And then we bred her, and then the very next year, the very first flush, I flushed her to no way of Joe's, mm -hmm. and got forty-four good embryos out, or got 40 out of 44 on that one is that is there any of that genetic like did her daughters flush that good her, too, her fl i remember with the first um set of those starbuck does on there there was a lot of them in there that we flushed that got uh in the upper 20s to low 30s as far as embryo numbers yeah. and so i really do think there's a high correlation in a lot of these on how how many embryos because i've, I've bought some females over the years that i love the body shape but a lot of those, I mean, there was one doe in particular, and he told me uh, about, um, that her mother only flushed about six or eight embryos every time, and every time we flushed that doe, got about six or eight embryos every time. So I do think there's a high genetic correlation. I gotcha. So when that first wave of, you know, 
aggressive embryo transfer and AI hit, you know, when you started doing it, did you see, did you just do it to be like, okay, we're going to get more numbers, we're going to raise more goats, or was it like, this is this made our quality, you know, 10 times better, 10 times faster? It was kind of a, it was kind of a little bit of both, to tell you the truth, Jake. It was like, I need, I'm fixing to ramp up and start getting more numbers, so the way to do this is like, take the best females that we've got and flush them, and if I'm going to get my numbers better, I want to, I don't want to get more numbers with mediocre females i want to get more numbers with the best ones i can yeah. and so the best way to do that was to go buy me a bunch of recepts and flush those to put them in you know and it's a double-edged sword when you when you get aggressive with the flushing you know if it all goes good you got lots of babies if it all goes bad you got a lot of recepts that are standing around that are eaten then there's and there's nothing that's in them because uh one they didn't either take or else you had um donors that didn't give you the numbers so i mean you know it's kind of a live and die by the sword kind of deal but it's it's definitely a way to accelerate your genetic program in a hurry and you better hope you make good uh decisions because if not you can accelerate it in the wrong in direction, the wrong direction. <laughs> exactly what's the best way to avoid that you know i think the best way to avoid that is to work with a consistent plan, you know, you know, if, if you're getting, if you're getting started and you're getting some animals and you want to start raising them, try to find the animals that you like, no matter where it is and try to get you a group of females from there. And, you know, and you might look at two to three different breeders and stuff to get it, but you know, don't go to, if you're wanting to get 10 head to get yourself started, don't go to 10 different breeders and buy one a piece, you know, try, try to get you some that are, you got a consistent look and then that way when you get a buck to go on them then you can kind of make everything kind of kind of go together work on all yeah them, just, you know. yeah exactly so let's talk about kind of females for a second like i know you know there's you know the, the groups of does that you that you just ai rear or you know they all kind of probably look a certain way and and your donors are you know freaks kind yep. of by definition yeah um but if you had to pick one doe on your place and have a hundred of her which which doe would it be Ooh. Just to work the best and just maybe not the freakiest, and maybe not the, I mean, just which one? You know, that's a good question. That's thought provoking, Jake. Um, and that's hard. You know, if I'm, if I'm going to say it right now, forever, I'm going to say it would have been that 1053 doe. And then after that, it went to maybe that 1247 doe. She was one of my absolute favorites and did, made a, so many good ones for us and then there's been a a lot of other ones that i like right now but the the one that stands out in my mind is probably rhonda uh rhonda was just a she was a freak accident when she was a baby we had all of our doe kids in a pen by the bucks and um the gate gets knocked open by the bucks and they all all the bucks ran with the doe kids the next morning so i put them out and i'm going man surely not and Oh, kids are too young. Yeah, too young. This isn't going to happen. Well, sure enough, Rhonda's mother got bred, and she had this little freak doe kid. Mm -hmm. And I love that doe kid. And I had, so I had all these bucks. I had Who's Your Daddy, Rumor Has It, Double XL, um, Can You Hear Me Now, Rockstar. There was a Karma. There was a, it was a cool buck battery we had out there. And so, 
I looked at her and thought what she kind of looked like, and I sent in to California to UC Davis, I believe it or is, to get the new so idea who her daddy was. So I sent the DNA in to like see who she was out of, and my first choices of everything that I thought it could be didn't match with anything. And then so I sent the next round of bucks in, and doesn't matter was her daddy. And doesn't matter was the laziest breeding buck that I had on the place at the time. <laughs> and so I'm thinking there's, there's no, no way, way that he, that he got. got her bred <laughs> because he is so lazy with all of these in there. And he and he was the dad to that uh, to her. And you know she her first kid crop we flushed her the first time, and she had her first baby. She had the champion light weighted Houston, and then the the brother to that was Fabio. Then the next flush that we did to her, she made um, black gold and she made, there was like six of black gold sisters that are just literally little freaks. I mean, there's some of them that are just the biggest hip, biggest back ones and there are some that are just so exotic and cool looking. Um, so that was the second one. And then this year, um, flushed her to blueprint and she raised the champion doe with the Arizona nationals and then her natural baby just won Houston this year and so, so I mean she's just kind of average she's just kind of average <laughs> you know it's like I think you might turn her with a Spanish belly and, and you make, and make a, a good one yeah and so <laughs> so she is pretty unique and and there's some other ones that we've got in there that are special too but uh she was turned out on a out in the brush pasture just that one pasture is about 500 acres of just like rough brush and stuff. And so when we got in from Houston, the very first thing that Dina did was her and Heath went up there to the mountain and found Rhonda and brought her back here. She decided she better <laughs> stay a little closer she to the barn. <laughs> so kind of the same question. I kind of thought of that more. So say you have a popper and there's a tornado coming to this place and you have to, you have room for one buck and one doe to completely restart your flock off of. Which two do you pick? Oh, wow. The one other thing that you didn't add in there is I'm throwing the semen tanks in the back no. seat. <laughs> okay. okay, you get the semen tank, but you can't use it for two years. Which one do you, which which pair do you take to make you another, a flock of females to replace this one? You know. If you can take the semen tank and use it. If you take the semen tank, I think probably the, the, the buck that throws in the pen first, even though he's, might be the oldest buck in there would be uh, Soldier Boy. I mean, that dude's been phenomenal for us, but there's some there's some young bucks right now that are rivaling him on what they're doing for us, and then we had some that we made in September that I cannot wait to see what their babies look like. Uh, Shake and Bake is one that I'm way excited about him and El Jefe, but Soldier Boy would probably get He's, I mean, he is the dominant buck in the pen, so he'd probably be the first one to load up anyhow. Yeah. And then um, I'm pretty sure as much as Dina likes Rhonda, Rhonda would probably be the, the one that gets jumped in there too. But but Kiki, the doe that won OYE, and she won uh, Georgia, and then her sister who won San Antonio Star, those are two freaks. Yeah. And it uh, – I don't know. We might have Hayden might have to sit in the back of the pickup and hold somebody <laughs> as as down the road. Yeah. Those, that Kiki line is probably my, one of my favorite Joe families here. You know that Kiki. This is pretty unique. Um, there was 
there was six sisters on those and we sent three does that went to Georgia and they um, there was three division champions out of those three does and when they went grand uh, grand in reserve overall and then and then Kiki wins um, OIE and then star wins San Antonio and then their sister in blood uh, out of another one of their I guess it'd be out of their mother's sisters um, was KJ and KJ won Louisville this year and she won Oklahoma State Fair and she won Tulsa. I mean that 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 line right there is it's, is unreal. Yeah, it's completely just way over the top valuable. And, and that, all those those moms are a, 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 you know siblings to a buck, aren't they? Yeah, to, they're sibling to Ali. Yeah, and that, and that's why that goes back to like what we talked about. And the thing that's really cool about that um, female as well. That's kind of go going back to those fleshing them four times deal we talked about you know we flushed her the first time kiki for instance we were talking about we flushed her to winterhawk and one of the most exotic group of kids that we probably raised were the ones that sold in that first group that were out they were sold that were out of her in winterhawk and then uh i'm i take that back in september the we flushed her in april uh we got two stud bucks out of that um out of her knockout mm-hmm. and um we've got shake and bake and we got magic man that are both just crazy unique animals just unique creatures and then we turn around flustered to Winterhawk, and we got um these babies right now that we just sold and then we should we've got more flushes that are going to be hitting the ground here I think in the next flush out of them and then I looked out there uh, worked them yesterday evening and their breads are waiting to see how they turn out naturally so it's kind of one of those deals where we're getting gonna have four different sets of babies out of those and so that's crazy it's pretty cool Modern technology it is you can do that yeah it really is it's absolutely wild so I think we're I mean I'm, we're gonna we're gonna have you on again Jamie we're gonna, we're, there's more to talk about for sure there's a lot more story to get to and, and a lot more goes to, to discuss um, but as we, I mean, we're kind of closing, um, we have a submitted question. If, if you only had, you know, on your phone for the rest of your life, you could only pick one song to have on there, <laughs> which, or do you, do you even have more than one song on your phone? I have, I, I actually have one song on my phone, <laughs> Jake. <laughs> so there, I'm, I, I, I want to tell the story. So me and, me and Jamie were, we flew to what, what, in Georgia? And uh, flew into Atlanta. Atlanta. Yeah. And we had a two-hour drive to Perry, Georgia, where the Georgia Nationals was. And he plugged in his phone for the GPS, and we just sat there and talked for the, during the whole drive. We yep. weren't really listening to music. But this one song they had on his phone, I didn't realize it until we got there, but it played over and over and over again. What, what's, what song was that, Jamie? All I do is win, 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 no matter what. <laughs> I, <can't laughs> I just thought that was funny because if you know Jamie, you know that he that that's probably Jamie's favorite song. Um, very appropriate. Um, but yeah, I think very competitive, Jake. Very competitive yeah. in everything he does. Um, that's for that's for sure. Uh, but like I said, um, we're gonna we're gonna have Jamie back on here. There's there's more to talk about. Well, there you have Jamie Smith's story into the the show goat world. I. Uh, I think his life is pretty cool to, to hear that whole story and how it all came together. Um, but his whole rodeo experience is, is something I definitely want to kind of discuss. Um, I didn't realize how good Jamie was at rodeo in his day. Um, but like when I first got to know him, you know, I knew he was, he rodeoed well, but it never really hit me how good he actually was until 
we were working does on the mountain when I was working for him this winter. And when we sort does over there, uh, we have to pen, you know, there's usually several hundred and we pen them all together and there's a huge group and, and the property is, is gigantic and they're all in one big pen. So we'll get all the does in there and then sort off the ones we need to haul back. Usually you know, we're taking breads back to the barn and you know, occasionally one will s or slip past Jamie at the sorting gate and they'll get turned out on the mountain. And one day we had one doe get by us and instead of running the whole group in, Jamie's you know, first words were grab the rope. And he walks, just walks through the herd and found the one he missed and he ran up on her. And at, at this point, you, know, you cannot outrun a goat, but I saw Jamie Smith do it. And this, this doe was booking it and he ran faster than her threw his rope and got her by the horns on the first try. And after I picked up my jaw off the floor and saved the Snapchat I was recording, um, I realized Jamie Smith's a cowboy. And um, we just you know, got to talking and, and later on I, I heard about their, their trophy room and I heard, heard about it a few times. And then actually just a couple weeks ago, Jamie took me through there in, in his mom's old house and this, there's a yeah, second you open the door. It smells like a leather processing plant. Like, it hits you in the face. It smells like, I, I guess, a boot store. And then you look around, and there's not an inch of that room that's not, you know, covered in a, a ribbon or a buckle or a trophy or, or something. Uh, between Jamie and his sister, they, they won a ton of rodeos. And, you know, their family was extremely dedicated to it. I mean, he, he said he loved it. And I, th and I think that's kind of what shaped, you know, how competitive that guy is in his, in his nature. That story about... When he was seven, and, and he had that guy helping him, and he got up on the horse, and and I think he he just continuously fell off. And he and for a seven year old, when they fall off a the horse, they're crying, you know, they're not they don't want to do it. But that guy made him get back on every time, dusted him off, said, "You're good, do it again," you know, "You're good, do it again," and and from then on out, there, there was no give up in Jamie Smith, and and especially when he was in his teens, and he told that story about when he was rodeoing, was doing good that day, and and was very close to winning the points broke his arm before his last round, a lot of people give up at that point. You know, it's kind of hard to ride a horse and throw a rope and do it well with a broken arm, you know, amongst all the pain. But, you know, it wasn't an option for him to, you know, quit before it was over. And he figured it out, and he hustled through, and, and he won the, you know, he won the points. And, and I, that never give up, no matter what mindset is definitely still in Jamie's head. I mean, it's there's no doubt about it. And it... His story into the Borgoats I thought was really cool, um, how he just kind of observed at those ABGA shows when he was selling feed and kind of picked out the ones he liked and, and you know, met Joe Raff and, and got hooked up with him and, you know, just gave him a call and, and you know, I guess the rest is history. I, you know, I never really realized that Mike Kelly, in, you know, in those early days, I, ne I didn't realize he was such close partners with Joe and, and even that he was part of Blue Team Weathers. Um, I thought that was really cool how all those guys – you know, they realize, you know, we can accomplish more together. Let's team up. We're already doing this. Um, and, they, and then they made it happen, and they, and they did a lot of winning, and they accomplished a lot, and not only genetically, but, you know, in terms of their names and, and, and what Blue Team Weathers still is today. But Jamie Smith doesn't do anything half-ass. Um, that whole crew over there, his, his family, his employees, if they catch wind that they, have, they could have better results on a flush with a new protocol that, say, takes like four hours more work, and is you know much more strenuous they'll do it without hesitation you know they doctor everything the second they cough they don't turn a blind eye to, to something that you know can be improved or fixed those guys will get home from a show and they'll work sheep and track until 3 a.m. just because it needs to be done 
and they don't complain. They, they just do it. They're, they're some of the hardest working people and being average just isn't part of their lifestyle. They don't have any free time and I think that's how they like it. Uh, like I said, Jamie, Jamie has a full-time job while he's doing blue team weather. So his wife, Dina, runs day-to-day -day operations. And you know, like I said, this past winter, I worked for them part-time and, and helped out a lot. And she was more of a leader than a boss. And, and talk about someone who not only owns the company, but puts more man hours in than any of the employees and doesn't let them outwork her. Uh, she sets a great example for employees and, and doesn't ask them to do anything that she hasn't done or, or won't do herself. Um, and that's, it's, it's, she's a really good person to work for. And, and I think their whole vibe over there is very, very, um, success oriented. And, and if you put the hard work in, it will pay off and you know, you can't be lazy. You can't sit around and you know, they're always moving that, that crew's always busy. They're always loaded up with stuff to do. And there's, there's a quote that comes to my mind that describes them perfectly. And I don't know if I'm quoting it perfectly, but it says, if you live like no one else, you can have what no one else has. And you know, I think that explains what they've got going on over there very well. Hope you guys liked it. I hope you learned a lot. Um, next week, we've got Steve Sturtz, and I'm really excited about that one. Steve has a great um, personality and mindset, and, and the way he, he's lived his life is, is very noteworthy. Um, we're excited about that. Don't forget to follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Make sure you subscribe. Follow us on Instagram, Legendary Mindset Pod, and our Facebook page, Legendary Mindset with Jake P.